Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Quantum physics uses the unique properties of quantum mechanics to enable computers to take on tasks at speeds beyond our current capabilities. A better understanding of quantum science means we are on the precipice of changing the equation around computer processing, information storage, data collection, and information and communication security. Quantum allows us to calculate multiple complex variables at the same time. Knowing how to manage this new capability means quantum computers are poised to permanently change how technology exists in society. This new capability could be both an asset and a liability to commercial and national security interests. Today's guest on Explain to Shane is Klon Kitchen. Klon joined the American Enterprise Institute as a resident fellow in foreign and defense policy in February of this year. Klon previously directed the Heritage Foundation's tech policy team and was a national security advisor to Senator Ben Sass from the great state of Nebraska. He has also spent a significant amount of time working in the intelligence community. Klon has studied the potential outcome and consequences of this major breakthrough quantum computing will lay before us. Klon joins us today to explain what's at stake for the U.S. in the race of quantum computing superiority how quantum computing functions, and how to manage the major changes in our ability to do computational work that will change the face of both commercial and national security technology forever. First of all, welcome to AEI. We're very excited to have you on Team AEI and all the expertise that you brought with you. Can you just start with an overview of what quantum computing is and why we're hearing so much about it and what it is on the horizon and if we're getting close? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always tempted to just tell people that quantum is essentially magic because that's what it sounds like. When we talk about quantum computing, we're talking about the application of quantum theory to computer science. So I won't go too deep down this rabbit hole, but there are two aspects to quantum theory. And quantum theory is essentially our hypothesis for how the world works at the subatomic level, right? That this is the way that we hypothesize and can understand things like lasers or photosynthesis. And there there are two aspects to it that are are particularly applicable to quantum computing. The first one is something called superposition. So in traditional physics, something cannot exist in two states simultaneously. In the quantum realm, they can. And so in the context of a computer, computers are made up of little calculators or switches that are either a one or a zero. People have heard that a lot but it can't be a one and a zero at the same time. Well, a quantum computer uses something called qubits that can be a one or a zero or both simultaneously. And so that represents a a, a significant growth in, in computational power, right? So that's one aspect. The second aspect is something called entanglement. In the quantum realm, there's this notion of entanglement where one body builds a relationship with a separate body And that relationship determines the state. So it's like if you had two dimes on opposite sides of the universe, you're spinning one and you stop it and it's heads. Well, because that's entangled with the other dime, you know that that other dime is now on heads. So when you have qubits in a quantum computer that you are able to entangle, well, then you have exponentially grown the computational capacity of that computer. So Those are two crazy, mind-bending dynamics that are currently being tried to be incorporated into computers. 
a few years ago, I would have said that we were a decade or two away from a, a true quantum computer. Google, however, recently came out, like within the last two months, they announced that they believe that they will have one of these computers before 2030. And even if that slips by a couple of years, we are talking about a fundamental shift in human knowledge and capability coming at us very quickly. It seems like whoever gets there first really has the pole position on this. And so in the United States, I know that we have been throwing money towards this in the government space, but it, I'm glad to hear that private industry has really been putting a lot of momentum into it too. But we're also very concerned about the nation state element of China getting to quantum before us and how it just breaks all of our encryption mm-hmm. and everything to that level. So can you give us a level of how scared we should be or how happy we should be about how the U.S. is doing versus China? Yeah. So there's a couple things there. So yeah, you're right. So quantum computing, as I mentioned, is about you know computational power and speed. And specifically, a quantum computer would constitute the single greatest technological leap in human history. That sounds extreme. I understand that that, that sounds like hyperbole. I don't think it is. I think that is a legitimate fact-driven assessment of what the potential of quantum computing really is. And so, as you mentioned, one example is the is the type of encryption that protects things like our nuclear codes. If you were to take one of those pieces of encryption right now, our current most powerful supercomputer would take somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of years, if they could break it at all, to break one of those codes. A quantum computer, especially the one that is being described by people like Google and others, would likely break that type of encryption near instantaneously. And that's a big deal. And that's only one very narrow application of what will be a very broadly applied innovation. And so, you know, beyond encryption concerns, both in terms of being able to break break our encryption and our inability to potentially crack China's quantum encryption, for example, there are a great deal of potential economic, social, and political benefits that quantum could enable. So, for example, a quantum computer would theoretically be able to model the subatomic environment. And so in a field like medicine, that would mean an exponential growth in our knowledge about medical research and treatment. So currently when we're researching new medications, you know, we 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 essentially work on hypotheses and then proceed through a process of trial and error. Well, okay, we'll add this. What did that do? Okay, that doesn't I'm not sure I understand that. Let's try that, you know, so on and so forth. Well, at the point where you can actually model what's happening at the subatomic level, then you actually are beginning to understand with real clarity the chemical and atomic reactions that you're that you're experimenting with. That's that's a level of granularity that we we just frankly can't even imagine right now. Another example of this this same level of knowledge could allow us to break through the physics barriers that have prevented us from building more efficient batteries. So just imagine the consequences of being able to power a city, for example, with a single battery the size of a shipping container. Like the societal impact of that one innovation alone is massive and difficult to trace. And so when we talk about quantum science and quantum computing, we really are talking about things of, of potentially kind of like societal level changes that I think are, are why people are, are paying attention to this the way they are. I know you had I listened to your something you did recently and you were talking about the noise situation where there's a significant technical challenge because the, of the ability of noise. What, what, can you explain what noise is in that context? Yep. So a quantum computer is really picky. 
So the computer that you you and I use every day, there are phones, our tablets, our laptops. In the normal kind of computing process, noise gets generated. And by noise, what we mean is kind of fragments of information or changes in the environment that may affect a computation. Well, our current computers are pretty robust and they adjust for noise very easily, very well. But because of the dynamics that we've been talking about in terms of entanglement, superposition, a quantum computer is very, very particular about the environment in which it is operating and the data which it is using. And so they typically operate at interstellar space temperatures, so absolute zero or near absolute zero. And any disruption in that environment can cause things to kind of go off, kilter. Now, the way you correct for noise is by essentially scaling the number of qubits that you have, functional qubits, and you you essentially overtake noise by having a, a, a broad enough computational environment to offset any noise that may be in the system. So that's what Google's actually focusing on right now. They've they, they say that, look, we figured out how to build these qubits and how to arrange them. Now we just have to be able to put them together in sufficient volume as to do the type of noise correction that a, that a general purpose quantum computer is going to require. So, yeah, that's what noise is. It's, it's, it's an inherent part of, of computing, and it's a, a, a particular importance when we talk about quantum computers. I just have in my mind these little qubits are like Rubik's cubes because I need a visual. <laughs> and I'm like, just the whole idea that they're here and there and matching each other and can talk to each other in long distances and no longer the zero, just a hard thing to wrap my head around. But I know it's important. You recently had an AEI report where you discussed the crucial security vulnerabilities the U.S. would face if an adversary achieved quantum computing superiority before we do, especially in the U.S. defense space. So we obviously are looking to upgrade sufficiently our capabilities. I know the, the last administration kind of put a push behind this. Are we seeing the same momentum with the, the current team that's in place? Yeah, I do think the, the Biden administration is continuing something called the National Quantum Initiative, the NQI, which was specifically aimed at trying to build partnerships between the public and private sectors in the United States to foster quantum research and innovation. And when we talk about security implications, you know, we, we briefly touched on the encryption challenge. I, I don't need to kind of beat that horse. No, it's but, an important one. Yeah, well, I mean, well it is, right? It is. It Once is, it's but broken, it's, it's broken, right? It's like, oh, okay, so all the locks don't work anymore. Well, exactly right. And, and but it even goes beyond the encryption problem. So for example, you know, there's the, the advantages a global challenger might acquire economically from having, you know, a robust more mature, you know, kind of quantum marketplace, or to be more kind of hardcore national security defense minded, this advancing science could also enable quantum sensors that would render many of our current advantages obsolete. So for example, one of these sensors could potentially locate and track a stealth aircraft or a nuclear submarine with extreme precision based simply on the environmental distortions that they create simply by existing, by being present. Well, what happens when our nuclear triad can no longer be hidden from an enemy? I mean, that, that is a fundamental reset of, you know, our foreign policy and national defense posture. And it's the types of things that are being pursued. I know that our military is pursuing quantum sensors, and it's reasonable to suspect that China and others are as well. I'm usually a, a big proponent of transparency in the commercial world as it relates to data and privacy, but not necessarily on where all of our defense mechanisms are. <laughs> That's a little frightening. So what type of vulnerabilities are we looking at here? And what are the real world implications? You just mentioned one of them is knowing where all of our 
chips are located. Yeah, I mean, like, look, I want a quantum sensor. I want to be able to locate all of the, you know, all the bad guy stuff. But, you know, with that comes... I just want to be able to find my iPod earbuds. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have smaller goals. <laughs> that's right. Well, Apple's, that Apple's happy to sell you that capability. Yeah. So look, I mean, in terms of securing quantum advantage, I think it's safe to say that the United States and China are the leaders in this science right now. Again, you know, each nation has a different approach to building quantum capabilities and each has their own kind of strengths and weaknesses. So the U.S. model of research and development and innovation is, is, I think, more agile. I think it's more creative, and I think it's more diverse. And I think that that generally is producing greater dynamism, and I think specifically encourages the underlying real scientific discovery of things. The Chinese model is more narrowly focused. It's kind of government-driven, but it benefits from that government support, and it allows R&D to be done in a deliberate and sustained way against you know key national priorities. So in the case of China, I think they're prioritizing information security as well as some biotechnology research. You know, when it comes to, you know, like who's winning this race, it's kind of hard to judge the race because all we know is that there's a number of people on the track and there is more than one path to the finish line. And so it's it's hard to kind of give you just like a straight up horse race analogy in terms of who's up and who's down. What we know is is that we're all kind of running down these different paths. And at the point where anybody actually achieves some type of meaningful advantage, that could that first mover advantage will be real and could have very quick follow-on effects. So is the first mover advantage, like I have this thing in my head where I think of it as like a sci-fi game show and whoever hits the buzzer first, it's like game over. <laughs> Does the other team just lose? Or is it just a building effect where we, you know, we see what they do, then we try to counterpoint? We may not know exactly how it's going to work. But we're going to spend a lot of time, and as they do too, you know, trying to re-engineer it or, or reverse engineer it and see what's going on. And it's also interesting. I like the point you make of that they are very specific in what they're looking to use quantum for. Or we might be looking at multiple avenues, and we have a lot of momentum, but not as directed as the Chinese currently have. Is that it? You know, my concern on this point there? Yeah, I think so. A lot of it is going to be in terms of like what first mover advantage means, a lot of that will be determined by where the where, where the discovery actually occurs. So in the case of the United States, the government has some black box R&D going on with DARPA and, and, and other portions of the government that are looking at this. And so if, if, the, if the real discovery happens there, then our chance of, of kind of keeping that to ourselves for a little while is probably goes up a little bit. If it happens in industry, a lot of this research is done in a kind of transnational way. And so one of the concerns that a lot of defense and national security people have is like, so unlike, say, nuclear weapons, where there's going to be a nuclear boys club, in the case of quantum, it very well could be like, once one person goes quantum, we all go quantum. And what does that mean? And so the reality is, is that both outcomes are possible, and we're not quite sure what either would mean. If the Chinese were able to realize quantum advantage and we're not close on the science, you know, we've been running down the wrong path or for whatever reason, they just got some kind of material advantage. That's a very real concern in terms of their ability to then leverage that for compounding benefit and effect. So it's not the kind of concern that we should assume, but we also can't dismiss it. So keeping in mind the possible shortfalls of the U.S. government not having as strong a centralized R&D and the Chinese obviously have a very strong industrial policy, what role should the U.S. government be playing in advancing our quantum computing capabilities? 
Well, so the first thing for me is is recognizing that the government clearly has a stake here. In other words, they they deserve a seat at the table. And you know that stake is seeing that the U.S. is not overtaken by quantum surprise. In fact, I I think I would argue that this, in one respect, goes to the core of the government's constitutional duty to provide for the common defense. So I think they I think this is a legitimate discussion for government to be involved in. That does not mean, however, that the government should centrally plan or manage this research. Instead, I think it should do what it's doing in that it should work with industry to communicate the government's interests, its priorities and concerns, and where possible, remove barriers to commercial innovation and research, right? I think that is a, a use, a good use of, of government's time and, and capacity is removing those barriers and, and encouraging kind of key initiatives. I've not heard anyone argue for kind of centralized R&D, but I do think there's a growing group on both sides of the political aisle that recognize this legitimate government equity in this research and the necessity for a type of whole of society engagement on these issues. I think that understandably makes some people, particularly conservatives, nervous because that type of rhetoric has used been used in the past to justify things that I think weren't justifiable. But I think this is one of those cases where we have a sufficiently important issue that is fundamental and consequential as to require a level of, of voluntary public-private cooperation because we're all standing over the same barrel. You've mentioned in some previous work the concern about mitigating counterintelligence threats by posing an overt and covert foreign infiltration. That, to me, is the biggest fear. <laughs> it's like we're going through ransomware hell right now. We can't get people to just do baseline cybersecurity that's just using the zeros and ones. But then you talk about a whole group of people coming in with these qubits and all this amazing technology, I feel like they're just going to be able to smash and grab and break anything they want if they get there before we're there to either implement it or defend it. And I don't know if there's policies we should be putting in place for that, or is it just the wild, wild west when it comes to computing again? We're in a whole new era. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's going to be a little bit of both. So NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is actually already working on quantum encryption standards, and those should be published in the relative near future. I hope that we get those out before Google actually realizes, you know, the, or, or anyone else actually realizes a, a true quantum computer. But so those types of, of security standards are actually being written right now. And in fact, there are a lot of companies who are already writing quantum enabled code and, and, and building software because essentially they know how to build the software once the computer exists. So they're waiting on other people to build the computer. But in terms of writing the code and, and, and building programs to operate on a quantum computer, we can kind of do that. And so that all that kind of stuff is being done. At the same time, this is going to be a little bit of, of new territory. And I do think that there are going to be some persistent cybersecurity challenges that come with these advancements, as there always is. And we're going to have to figure those out. And we're going to have to probably do it live, which is not the best way to do it. But it's hard to come up with a better alternative at this point in terms of where research is. What are our immediate future developments we should be looking for? What do we see on the horizon? I know you mentioned Google just had an announcement last week, which was exciting. They announced that they're working on quantum. What else do we have going on, especially in the, the U.S. sphere? I know we have some of our more old school colleagues and they've been in this space for a long time. IBM, HP, probably Intel working in this as well. Yep, that's right. So a couple of things. Honeywell is also big on this. The University of Maryland has a partnership. They're doing a lot of really good work on that. So I think you're going to see a steady supply of just kind of core quantum computing science research that's coming out. I mentioned the NIST quantum security standards. 
I think you're also going to increasingly hear in kind of the broader public conversation, this idea of quantum as a service. So where tech companies are, are offering paying customers access to quantum computers and software and applications that I was describing just a moment ago. And they won't be like the, the fully baked quantum computers. We're going to have a number of, of kind of iteratively more powerful computers, I think, between now and whenever that day is when we finally achieve true quantum advantage. But I think this is going to be a more common part of the social and economic lexicon of the nation. I, I just think that, that the science has, in fact, matured enough to where we're going to hear more about it as we go forward, because it's, it's transitioning from being theoretical, wouldn't this be cool, to, hey, I think we've actually got something here, and I'm starting to build stuff. I love the idea of quantum as a service. Like you only need to be superpower brained at certain points in time. You don't have to actually own all these amazing computers. You're going to just tap into them. That's right. We hope that they're authenticating and making sure they know who's doing that. <laughs> we, we can only help. So we see, from what I hear you saying, quantum is going to change our computer processing. What about storage? Is that, that going to be mm -hmm. a total game changer as well? Yeah. So the same advantages in terms of its ability to process and collect and move data also applies to its ability to kind of hold data, right? So yeah, I mean, that's one of the, that will be one of the material advantages of quantum. You know, again, I, I do want to put one caveat. None of this is guaranteed. My only point on quantum computing science is that this seems more realistic and more possible than anyone would have said a short few years ago. And the, the level of evolution that has occurred in just the last three years suggests like, okay, we may have the tiger by the tail right now. We, we, may have, we may have figured something out. But yeah, one of those advantages will be the ability to hold and store volumes of data that are just currently unimaginable, which would then, so if you, if, you could, if you could hold and store, I'll just make something up. Let's say you could hold and store every person's current GPS location on the planet. Let's say you could do that you'll also have the computational power to process that data, apply a type of quantum-enabled AI algorithm that could then do all kinds of interesting predictive functions on that data. So you've, you've got the volume of data, that's the gasoline, you plug it into an AI engine, and all of a sudden, you know, you're producing something frightening in one sense, but then also from a just pure science standpoint, just unbelievable. So that's, that's the type of stuff we're talking about when we talk about quantum. You mentioned the temperature needing to be incredibly cold. I forgot what the, the point is. Is that a cost concern or just a capability concern to be able to keep that going? And does it, what happens if it rises above that particular temperature point? Well, it stops working. So the temperature thing is, is kind of a... It's <laughs> okay. right, kind of a, a game changer, right? <laughs> right, right. But we have environments where, we, where we're able to do that. So the temperature thing is something you have to factor for, but I don't think that it's a meaningful variable and preventing the realization of the science. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you, you have to you have to figure it out, right? And just in the same way that, you know, I mean, to put it very crudely, and I'm, I'm sure there's computer science people who will hate me using this, but an internal combustion engine only works within a certain spectrum of, of, of temperature, right? And we figured out how to kind of make them work for our purposes, keeping them within that temperature range. I think that's largely going to be the same case with quantum computers. They have to operate within a certain temperature range. We'll figure out a way to do that at scale and we'll be fine. 
as somebody who gets her car in these hundred degree days in DCs and just really thankful that my tires don't melt and my car doesn't explode because <laughs> I don't know, understand that much about it. I'm like, God love the engineer figured all this stuff out because I would just say, damn it, I'm hot. I'm not going anywhere. Well, this has been fascinating. Are we going to see more of this quantum information flow coming from you in your, your current work? Or do you plan on doing more than your future on this? Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things where for me it's always about bandwidth because technology and national security is a, a, a huge portfolio. I love it, but there's a lot to be done. But quantum is one of these things that's so consequential and frankly, you know, so interesting that I do try to regularly return to it and and kind of build out my scholarship on it when and if and how I can. Great. Well we will be we will keep an eye out. Well, Con, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.